one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Darren Lewis from the Daily Mirror, and Art DeRoche from Football.London. International football is part of the fabric of our sporting lives. The boys of 66, Gazza's Tears, Euro 96, Glenn, Sven and Big Sam. Most recently, Gareth's new boys in Russia. Playing for England still means a lot to the players, but really, you can have too much of a good thing. Let's be honest, the Nations League is of marginal relevance. If anyone gets injured in Reykjavik on Saturday or in Copenhagen next Tuesday, club managers will, understandably, be livid. Is all this an avoidable complication, Darren? Yes, I think it is, Mike. I think what we're seeing here is UEFA managing to squeeze in an international break in the 20 days between the 2019-20 Champions League final and the 2020-21 Premier League season and the La Liga season starting. Now, what you have to bear in mind, and the people listening to this will know as well, is that the competition's got less riding on it than the First Nations League because there is no guaranteed World Cup qualifying spot. So everybody watching, listening, will have the right to ask, what's the point? Particularly when you bear in mind that with the financial stakes higher than ever before in the domestic leagues, Managers' jobs ride on having their best players available and they will not want their best players to get any kind of injury in these matches that are coming up. What these games do do is they fill the insatiable need for competitive football that broadcasters have and a lot of fans have. Uh, And I can understand that argument too, just in case anyone contends with what I've just said. I can understand the argument, but the players' welfare and the the security of the managers and also the well-being of the clubs as well, those things are paramount. Listen, Art, who who will speak in a second, he's got excellent relationships with a lot of the young players who will seize the opportunity, Mike, to make the most of their opportunities given that a lot of the senior players were involved in the latter stages of the big competitions are not available and some have not been selected due to form or some of the rising stars are going to be given their heads and the opportunities to take their chances but for me I think that what we're seeing is an avoidable international break 
one that people can't really get on board with because they are waiting for the Premier League season to start and they're waiting for the players to get fit. And they will be well aware that the players have had nowhere near enough of a break after what was a long, traumatic, at times torturous uh, 1920 season. Yeah. Oh, you know, as Darren mentioned there, the players, you know, you're, you're in tune with the younger generation of players. It's been interesting listening to people like Connor Cody, Calvin Phillips, you know, the joy that they they felt when they were called up. In your experience, the current sort of the emerging generation of players, does playing for England mean as much as it ever did? I think it does. I think even though... Some may argue the relevance of international football has slightly decreased over the over the years. I think you've just got to look at not only the players' reactions to getting their call-ups, but the, their fans as well. You look at Leeds fans when Phillips got his call-up, they were ecstatic. Same with Villa fans when Jack Grealish finally got the call-up that most people felt was quite overdue, really. And then even, again, Arsenal fans with uh, Ainsley Meehan now. So I think... Across the board, I do feel there's still an excitement and appetite for international football, even with the younger generation. But it is, as you say, I don't think they're totally on board with having it crammed down their throats, really, because you look at the schedule and you've got another break in October as well to think about. So I think it is all all about kind of measuring the balance between what is too much and what isn't enough. Mm. You know, I suppose a, a decent compromise would have been for Gareth Southgate to have a training camp. It would basically you know, renew his relationships with his players and then not endanger any relationship with clubs. Given all that, Darren, we'll have to look at the value from these two games, presumably is looking at players who maybe are just emerging into the international setup. The FA are extremely good at the you know, public relations side of things in terms of making players more available. It was interesting that Mason Greenwood should be immediately put up before the media. Do you think that's significant? Yeah, I think it is. I think, uh, A, because he's, uh, he's very much an A-lister now, isn't he? And he's made himself an A-lister with his outstanding performances last season, given the limited number of appearances that he did have. Ole Gunnar uh, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he, I think he's done a tremendous job with Mason Greenwood and he's made him one of the most exciting players, not just at Manchester United, but in the entire country. And yeah, if you're going to put up somebody as a poster boy for the New England going into the new campaign and also as a reminder to some of the more established players that they can't take their places for granted, then who better than somebody who only really has a couple of players who have scored more goals than him at his age in Manchester United history. What I didn't like, I have to say, I'm not quite so much on board with people asking young Mason Greenwood about whether players should still be kneeling and all of that sort of thing. You know, what, 100 days since George Floyd? I don't want to go into this area too much because I think we'll have time enough to talk about it, but... Really, after 100 days, it's really for us to be asking the people who run sport what they are doing, rather than asking players if they're still going to be protesting. You know, we know why they're protesting. You know, we know how they're going to protest. But what are the people who are they are protesting to 
doing about the conditions that we continue to find ourselves in? That's the real question that we have to ask. Let's not go through the motions and the formulas and, and the tired way of approaching these subjects. And Mason Greenwood, to his credit, he answered the questions very well. But those questions should not be put on him. And, and it's incumbent on us to remember that. Yeah, I take that point because there's always a, a never-present danger of tokenism on this, isn't there? And, and it almost becoming a bit knee-jerk. And in, in, in that, you know, what we've seen are is the new generation of players taking the lead in terms of pricking people's social consciences. Yeah, Marcus Rashford has withdrawn from this squad. What are your reflections on his food poverty campaign? Has any other footballer been more socially influential than Rashford? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure you may contend with this. Uh, and just as an, a, a very quick aside before we get into the serious stuff, it was quite heartwarming that when Mason Greenwood was asked who his influence was, uh, he didn't talk about anyone from the 90s or the 80s or even the 70s. He mentioned Marcus Rashford, who's only a few mm. years older than he is. But you can see already the impact that Marcus Rashford is having on young people who want to have a voice and not just have a voice, but want to be able to turn that voice into action. I would argue, I would argue that in the last few years, Danny Rose and, and Raheem Sterling have been particularly influential. Sterling has sent shockwaves through the game. I say shockwaves, no, I take that word away. He, he's loosened the foundations, if you like, with the subjects that he's touched upon because they've been uncomfortable for the journalistic industry and they've been comfortable for football administration as well. When he says, I look at the top of the game and I don't see anybody who looks like me, who I can relate to. That's uncomfortable for the Blazers at the FA. Not so much on the PR side, because they've done, as you said, a tremendous job. But certainly on the board, where we don't have any black players. So how on earth can they identify with the young black players who are going through the kind of thing that we're seeing in this country and on the other side of the Atlantic? And how can they change things if they can't relate to the young players who are playing the game? So from that point of view, there are other players that have been influential. The, the thing about Rashford, I would say, is that he's turning that influence into action because he's making sure that kids in this country are getting fed. It's a scandal in this country where we're trumpeting being able to sing Land of Hope and Glory, that there are so many young kids without any hope. There are so many young kids who don't know what they're going to eat from one day to the next. And there are so many politicians who are pouring themselves a large one over being able to wave their flag at the proms, but are voting against children in this country being fed. Now, you know, this isn't a political podcast by any stretch of the mm. imagination, but there are some social realities that we have to grasp and football does not operate in a vacuum. And when Rashford talks about hearing his mum cry herself to sleep because she doesn't know how he is, how she's going to feed him or his family, there are young black men up and down this country and young white men and women up and down this country who know what that feels like to be in a household like that. So what he's done is he's turned his influence, his huge social media following, his huge media presence, his ability to command a slot on Good Morning Britain and BBC Breakfast, he's turned that into action. 
Yeah, from your perspective, Art, and say you're close to the, the the new generation of players. Do they view Rashford in the way that Mason Greenwood did in terms of being a role model? How important is he to his fellow players? Do you think? I think he'd be very influential in terms of the subject they've spoken about because, of course, with Raheem Sterling and Danny Rose, the subjects that they have talked talked about are difficult subjects for people to digest, but they're also subjects that have been spoken about before. I think the the angle Rashford came from was a completely different one in the fact that it was based around free school meals. And speaking from a personal perspective, I was someone who was on free school meals, but when, when you're actually on those free school meals, people looking from the outside may not view it that way, but you're actually more kind of embarrassed that you're on them so I wasn't even taking them until maybe my last year in secondary school but I think that's something that most people who aren't on free school meals might not understand the kind of mental side of it where younger people like Darren said whatever color or gender you are they might not view being on free school meals as something that is something to talk about whereas with Marcus Rashford speaking about it so well and so publicly that kind of breaks down that barrier even for them of course in terms of uh, whether there has been sports person more influential I think I'm not sure about in England but the main name that sticks out for me is Didier Drogba ending the civil war in Ivory Coast after the 2006 World Cup I think that can't be underestimated when you look at kind of a social influence anyway. Looking at the sporting side of things, again, still with you, if I I may, Art, Ainsley Maitland-Niles into the squad for the first time, into the England squad for the first time. Does this, do you think, that recognition, does it add momentum to keep him at Arsenal? I think the momentum was already there, to be honest. Uh, When you look at his time under Mikel Arteta, it was a great start for him as he was probably one of the most influential players to Arteta in terms of what he wanted to bring to the Arsenal side. So, of course, everyone knows his preferred position is a midfielder, but he's had to play at fullback, both left-back and right-back. And when Mikel Arteta first came in, he was using him as a slightly more inverted right-back, like how Pep Guardiola's done with Kyle Walker and Philip Lahm at Bayern. And he was incredibly suited to that role. Of course, he then lost his place in the side for a few months. And Arteta spoke about how Ainsley Maitland-Niles had to show him every day that he wanted to be in the team, wanted to be the best player player for himself. And that's something he admitted that Maitland-Niles was able to address over lockdown. And I think we saw that in terms of the fact he was using him in such big games like the FA Cup semi-final, the FA Cup final, and then, of course, the the community shield that's just gone in roles that aren't typical for Maitland-Niles to play if you're looking from the outside. I think um, there was kind of a narrative earlier in the season that he was kind of rejecting the fullback roles after an interview he did where he just admitted that it's not his preferred position. But I remember uh, just after lockdown reading an interview he did with Sam Wallace in The Telegraph where he said, basically, if he if he was told to play goal, he'd do it. And I think we've seen that 
with uh, not directly, but with him playing at left wing back for Arteta in the FA Cup semi-final and the Community Shield, I think he's proven that um, he's willing to do anything to be a starter at Arsenal. Oh, did that come about because I covered a couple of the Europa League games that Arsenal played in the latter stages and Saka uh, played at left wing back and it really deepened the huge impression that he'd created previously. And maybe he had set a bar for Maitland-Niles to reach because he didn't ask any questions. He just went in, did the business and Maitland-Niles probably realised, well, hang on a minute, if he's gone in there and he's getting all the plaudits, maybe I need to raise my game too. I think that could have had a, an impact because when you look at Saka, the one, one of the many things that's been impressive for him last season was the fact that he was so willing to fill in in any position he was asked to. He played in central midfield, left back, like he said, left wing, right wing, and performed exceptionally well in all those roles. I think Maitland-Niles had always had the talent to do the same, but it's just kind of maybe the mental side of it of being prepared to do that at any time Mikel Arteta asks him to was maybe something that was changed. I know uh, Arteta spoke specifically about his attitude improving during lockdown. So I think the momentum for a potential stay at the club was probably built over that time period rather than uh, just his Community Shield performance. Yeah, I I think Gareth Southgate might have missed a bit of a trick with not including Saka in this particular squad. But there are, you know, young players out there with with a great chance. Phil Foden, Darren, you know, there is talk about the potential of a a partnership between him and Greenwood. Will that make any difference to his club status? Do you have any confidence that, okay, David Silver has left City, that he, that, that Foden will become a City regular in the new season? That's a really good question because Guardiola's job is to get City back to the top and there's no doubt whatsoever that Foden is an exceptional player but the fact is that when you're talking about breaking the bank and spending three quarters of a billion pounds to recruit Messi then you have to wonder for (laughs) what that means in terms of how the side is going to be made up because if you do recruit Messi then you have to recruit high caliber players around him and the very reason why Barcelona are failing is because the players around Messi no longer can do what the likes of Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets and all of those stellar leading lights could do. So you have to wonder in that regard about Phil Foden's long-term prospects as a first-team regular, not as a valued squad member, because he is very valued at Manchester City, but in terms of nailing down a regular first-team place from the start, not coming on for the last 20 minutes, half an hour, 10 minutes, starting League Cup games, but nailing down a Champions League and a Premier League first team place. And then you obviously have to think about what he would do if he doesn't have that regular first team place because we've seen lots of very, very good players at Manchester City say, no, I want to stay, fight for my place, and then end up with the moment passing where they could be a value contributor to the team and having to go elsewhere and not quite being able to live up to the standard that they'd arrived at the Etihad with. So next season, I think, is a pivotal one for Phil Foden. He's a terrific player, ended the season really well, and I think getting a taste of first 
team football with England and obviously with the major tournament at the end of the season. That might well be the carrot for him. He's been speaking terrifically well, obviously, so far. But I think the major tournament might be the, the, the goal for him to say, look, this might be the time to step out from a few shadows. Well, since we've mentioned the M word, I suppose we'd better talk about Messi. We've worked out what his dad has for lunch when he goes to Barcelona to see the president. I suppose what we haven't worked out is the subplot to all this. Is this a genuine chance of him turning up in the Premier League or is it just another political power play? What do you think, Art? At the moment, I feel it's quite difficult to see Messi come into the Premier League just because of the global superstar that he is. Not trying to downplay the Premier League in any way, but even if you look back to, I can't remember which episode it's in, but in Spurs' All or Nothing documentary, Jose Mourinho told Harry Kane that everyone looks at English football with incredible respect, but they still believe the the Hollywood movie stars deserve to play elsewhere. And yes, Pep Guardiola's at Manchester City. And yes, even you can mention Sergio Aguero, who's very good friends with Messi, is at Manchester City. But whether that alone is going to be able to pull him to Manchester and England, I'm I'm not totally 100% sure. And I think at the moment it looks more like a power play than anything. But of course, there's still just over a month left in the transfer window. So there's probably a, poss- uh, uh, a possibility, whether how small or large, that it could happen. Yeah, a lot of ifs, buts and maybes to play out there, I think. What about the sort of the qualities of the, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, Darren, but the journeyman Premier League pro. Now, someone like Connor Cody, I've been hugely impressed by him, his leadership qualities uh, at Wolves, how he's built a career away from Liverpool. Do we sometimes get a bit sniffy about players like that? Because... You know, I'm sure that if Conor Cody had been playing for Tottenham or Arsenal or Manchester United, he'd have been in this squad earlier, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would, and he would have commanded more column inches with his call-up as well. Let's not kid ourselves. I think you're, you're right, we do. And I, I say we because I'm part of this industry as well. We do get a bit sniffy about journeyman pros. He was at Liverpool, and again, if he were a Liverpool player, he would have commanded more column inches still. I think he only made one appearance for them in the Europa League and then he went away and he, he backed himself to, to forge a, a career which he's done. He's made himself a mainstay of the Wolves team. And I really liked the reaction to his call-up as well, him talking about his, the tears in his family and the recognition of what it means, not just to him, but to them. Because I think players, very often, we've seen it all the time, haven't we, take their call-ups for granted. I'm back, here we go, you know, a roll of the eyes, let's get my man bag or whatever. Whereas, you know, he's worked hard and he's got himself back to the top after leaving a top club. And you're right, I think that we do need to maybe show a bit more appreciation of the hard work that goes into achieving such a landmark call-up. And I do hope that he, with his grit and his determination, is able to make a success of the call-up and show the leadership skills for which he is renowned at Wolves. Yeah, you know, the call-up obviously meant a lot also to Jack Grealish, didn't it, Art? He's now in the England squad, but he's still in limbo, really. How do you see his future playing out? I wouldn't be surprised if he stays at Aston Villa, 
just the way he's kind of conducted himself over the summer, it, it seems he's very happy there. And I think the fact they stayed in the Premier League will obviously play a massive deal in that. In regards to just his call-up and everything surrounding that personally, and I think this is something that is probably uh, echoed across English football fans. I think the call-up's probably been coming for a while. I think everyone's just been waiting for the moment when it was announced he, he'd be an England player. I think I'm really excited to see what he can do on the international level. Of course, people may question whether it's right to have, like you say with Cody, as a Wolves player, people may put their noses up as he's just... I, I'm doing a quotes, <laughs> quotes <laughs> sign, just an Aston Villa player. But I think that shouldn't really make a difference. If, if you look at the way he played last season, he was arguably one of the most influential midfielders in the Premier League, despite having to fight relegation. And I think had Gareth Southgate not included him, it would have been a mistake, not just because of what uh, fans may say, but in terms of the fact that he he has proven that he's a player that can influence whatever team he's in, even if they're massive underdogs. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing him play for England. Yeah, I, I suppose that the big question to be answered over the next couple of days or next few months will be to do with the goalkeepers, Darren. There is a sense that Jordan Pickford's probably had his time, but he's still there. Dean Henderson is an interesting situation with his club uh, at the moment. On the same theme almost as the Connor Cody question, you've got Nick Pope. Is he suffering from the Burnley syndrome? Because I, I, I look at him and I see a fantastic goalkeeper. Yeah, I do too. The, the feeling had been uh, in some circles that uh, maybe he wasn't coping particularly well with the step up to international level because he has been in the fold before. But last season, his consistency was outstanding. He was competing with Alisson for the Golden Gloves for the most clean sheets in the Premier League. And there had been some talk that Chelsea, who were looking for a new goalkeeper, uh, had cast admiring glances in his direction. I think they're now looking at the Ren keeper, Bernard Bendy. But it wouldn't surprise me if a bigger club did take a look at him because he's a, a, a terrific player. But... It's true, Mike. Let's not kid ourselves. In this country, we don't really give players their due because of the clubs that they play for. And they put in outstanding, consistent performances. And we only recognise them in the context of other clubs wanting them rather than the club where they are performing, doing the best to get the best out of them. And the manager doing the best to get the best out of them. And Sean Dyche has done a terrific job in building a secure defensive unit and enabling Nick Pope to express himself and command that defensive unit in a superb way. And I hope Nick Pope gets his chance with England and keeps that spot because he's much more authoritative, he's much more agile, He's a much lower maintenance goalkeeper. I, I think maybe just as it is the case with De Gea and Henderson, and I'm sure you'll get to that, uh, and Henderson needing some time at the firing line, Pickford needs some time at the firing line. And it would not surprise me at all if Carlo Ancelotti were to go out and look for a new goalkeeper this summer after he does the other work in his midfield area. Yeah, I suppose when you're looking at that uh available goalkeepers. Would you think that Arsenal have a decision to make about their goalkeepers as well? Yeah, I think out of all the clubs in the Premier League, they're probably the one with the 
biggest decision to make. I think it's quite weird because when you look at the dilemma Arteta's got, he, before the Community Shield, he compared it to fullbacks, which was, when when you first listen to it, you're like, fullbacks, really? But then you look at it and it is quite similar to the fact that they're going to just have to push each other to be as good or if not better than one another. And then, of course, after that, push the team to be even better. So I think when you look at uh, Bernd Leno, he had an outstanding season last year in regards to traditional goalkeeping sense of just uh, keeping the ball out the net, really. He was pivotal under Emery in not allowing Arsenal to slip too far. Then once Arteta came in, he was also crucial to turning those draws in January to wins in February. But assessing him with Martinez, I think Martinez is much more comfortable in terms of the distribution sense. I think we've seen that in, again, the FA Cup final run last year. And even with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's goal against Liverpool, the way uh, he started to move. And I think in, in particular for that goal, the fact that he tried to do the same, basically, movement with David Luiz 30 seconds before the one he did with Rob Holden. But it is the confidence to do it again and again and again, which pays off. So it's a good issue for Mikel Arteta to have. And I don't think he'd be remiss to having both of them at the club, even if it means one is slightly less happy. Yeah, that's a tricky managerial um, issue to deal with. You know, we talked at the top of the show, Darren, about you know the potential of a club v country clash. I can see that being reflected in the women's game, can't you? You know, you think about it. England's next game is in Germany on October the 27th. The women's FA Cup final is four days later. If Manchester City get there and they they provide a lot of the England squad, I can see real tension. Can you see clubs withholding players? And does it emphasise the fact that, you know, maybe with the best will in the world, Phil Neville is a lame duck? Well, you know, uh, yes, in a word, yes. And it's quite nice in, a, in another way to see that the women's game is, I say nice, and I, I clearly don't mean nice, fascinating, to see that the women's game is suffering from the same problems that the men's game has, which is that these internationals are scheduled at a time when eyes are very much, uh, tensions are fixed firmly on the domestic season and and players the fascinating aspect of it is that players obviously want to get themselves in a situation where they force themselves into the the thinking of the incoming England boss Serena Beekman sorry um and they will need the consistency to be able to do that but at the same time what they will also need and they will also want, is to put themselves in a situation where they can maybe use the international break to catch her eye in the first place. Now, with her track record, you would imagine that she's probably done her homework as well and will have a fair idea of the players that she will want to form a nucleus of her thinking going forward. But all of that is to say, in answer to the latter part of your question, yes, Phil Neville very much is a lame duck manager uh, in the role basically going through the motions and for that reason it's all a bit of a mess 
really. Uh, and what you what we should have had is a situation where she took over straight away and he was gone. And then maybe they could have planned it a bit more differently so that the players could focus. There is a lot of positivity around the women's game at the moment. A lot of good signings, um, a lot of excitement around the WSL starting starting up again. We've got the TV deals that have been secured, the international TV deals that have been secured. And I think as far as the women's game is concerned, it's in such good shape going into the new campaign. And then you have this mess, club v country, rearing its head again. And I think a lot of the players are going to be more focused on their clubs than they are on the country. Yeah, you, you mentioned there, Darren, that um, the WSL starts are this weekend. Ah, oh, It looks to me logical that that's a three-horse race between Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal. Is there almost a danger of entrenched elitism like we see in the Premier League, that the clubs who put the most money behind their women's teams have got, logically, the biggest chance of success? I'd sway towards saying yes, but I wouldn't call it elitism. I think that's just going to be the case in whichever sport, whichever league you're playing in. Whoever invests the most is going to have the most success, I think, and... That is what you need to drive the competition forward, I think. If you're looking to strengthen a league, then you're going to need better players in it. And I think that's something that has been evident in the rise of the Women's Super League over the past five years, especially when you look at the type of players that, uh, like you say, Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal have been able to attract. Then you look at the way things are going now, you see that, even with Everton signing uh, Izzy Christensen and Manchester United's rise from the championship and Tottenham also, you see that other teams aren't willing to just lay down and accept that there's going to be Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal as the top three teams. They're going to try at least to match them in some some respect. Of course, it's going to be a difficult task and it's not going to be an overnight thing because because of the quality in those sides. But I don't think it is an elitist kind of way of running things. I just think that's the way sport works. And <laughs> um, and just some teams are going to come off uh, on the shore end of the stick. Mm. You've, got, you've got Manchester City who, who, who kick us off at Aston Villa on Saturday on BT Sport. They're having to deal with losing Lauren Hemp to a hamstring injury in the Community Shield. But they've got two of the best US players coming in, uh, Rose Lavelle, sorry, Lavelle, and also Sam Mewis. The internationalisation of the league fits into what you talked about earlier, Darren, about the development of women's football and this, the, the sense that this is its time. Overnight also, we heard that Brazil are now sanctioning equal payment for their men and women's international teams. That strikes me as being hugely significant, both symbolically and financially. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think that with all of these things, when the tone is set from the top, then you it, it kind of sends the message out through the game as to how both sides, the men and the women's game, are valued right throughout the sport. 
And I think that when smaller clubs do it, I know that in the UK, for example, I think it was Lewis who did it in the south on the south coast. Yeah, they, they did, yeah. yeah. Who did it quite some time ago? Uh, and they'll probably be turning away and saying, "Well, we did it. Nobody better than I did." But I, I think with the Brazilians doing it, the Celacao, that it will be a really strong message to send out in terms of the way that we value women's football and the growth of the women's game at the very top level. And I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that what it does, we know in this country now that lots of the big clubs are taking their women's teams far more seriously. And we're seeing with the movement of the top players uh, and the recruitment of the top clubs that there is much more thought going into it and much more ambition around it as well. I'm now hoping that there is a much greater move towards replicating what the Brazilians have done so that we can see the best players come to this country. Yeah, there still is a gap in terms of you know, finances. If you think about it, Chelsea had a record signing of Peniel Harder earlier in the week, which is a huge statement of intent from them, you know, a fantastic player. And they've got a frightening range of attacking options. If you think about it, you've got Harder, uh, Cuthbert, England, Kerr, Kirby. We'll get an early indication of how good they are when they play Manchester United again on BT Sport on Sunday. Do you know what the interesting thing? Do you know what the interesting thing about that? Sorry, Mike, for interrupting you. It was the fact that even in the way that we cover these stories, that's changed too because we've got so much going on in the men's game, and yet Chelsea signing Ohada made one of the back pages this week and that in itself might be a small thing to the people who are listening but it's a major change you know we are reporting on the women's game in the same way that we do now in the men's game when in terms of it making back pages making pages I, I've been at my paper long enough to know that you know there were there are times when uh, the media industry wouldn't really bat an eyelid and I'm even talking about the so-called enlightened areas of our industry, wouldn't bat an eyelid at these signings. And now things are changing for the better. And these big names coming into the big clubs are making the headlines that they should. Mm. Uh, you know, you're close to, to Arsenal. You, you look at the uh, their women's side as, mu- as much as the men's, uh, men's side. They've not been as assertive in the transfer market this summer as others. They start against Reading on Sunday, uh, what's your sense from the club of their ambitions for their women's team? In terms of the transfer t- activity, I wouldn't say they haven't been assertive. I'd say they've just known what they need to kind of address. So when you look at, of course, the business Chelsea have done, is quite eye-opening in terms of the talent they've been able to bring in. And with Harder being a, an attacking player, that's obviously going to... Um, bring more attention but with Joe Montemurro the thing has really uh, for him has really been about building on the players he already has at the club so last season and the season before his squad well his squads have always quite been quite small and compact there were times even in the title winning campaign where I don't think like he fielded a full substitutes bench so it's been just about filling the gaps in the team and we've seen that with the activity in the transfer market being being around the defensive areas and midfield I think even with Noel Moritz coming in as a fullback you saw in the her make her debut in the Champions League loss against PSG and that that can have a domino effect in Lisa Evans who's natural winger 
who's played as a fullback in the last couple of seasons moving forward. And then that has a domino effect on Beth Mead possibly moving further infield to her natural position. And that it's just the options Joe Montemiro would like to have to have more tactical flexibility, I think, because when, when you look at his Arsenal side, a lot of the time it is quite difficult to predict how he's going to set up because he's so fluid in terms of the uh, systems he likes to play with and the roles he has his players play. So that's in terms of the transfer sense. I, I, I wouldn't say they haven't been assertive. They've just been more keen on the details for the needs of the team. And then on the aspirations, I know he had his pre-match press conference for the opener against uh, West Ham this weekend. Uh, sorry, Redden this weekend. He was asked about being kind of the outsider in terms of Manchester City and Chelsea, and that's something he was completely fine with. And uh, I think that he's being genuine when he says that, that he doesn't mind not having the spotlight that other teams will have as he will just go on about his business as usual. So I think the aspirations will still be to challenge and challenge for the WSL title, but he he's not going to go about it in a way that is going to kind of make everybody turn to, to him as the headline maker, I think. Hmm. Let's dwell then, Darren, on perhaps more familiar areas, the men's transfer market. Manchester United, they signed Donny van der Beek from Ajax. 33 goals, 27 assists in 135 appearances. Got a great engine, technical quality under pressure, late runs a la Lampard. To me, only, and I say only, 35 million, he's got to be probably, at the moment, the best signing of the summer, hasn't he? Yeah, I probably tend to agree with that, Mike. I think as far as he is concerned, he was one of the players that was expected to leave Ajax after their Champions League run last year. And he stayed for an extra season. But now he adds variation, he adds depth, he adds goals from midfield to the Manchester United midfield. And I think he's a, he's a super signing and a really, I'm amazed really, that it took so long for a club to prize him away this summer. Uh, Tottenham had been in for him, but they can't offer Champions League football. That's the first blow, really, in their bid to try and compete with the top teams uh, and the kind of paying the penalty for not finishing in the top four. But as far as Manchester United concerned, they finished last season really well. And OK, they may not have won the FA Cup, but the Champions League is where they wanted to be. They didn't want to have to pay that Europa League tax of having to pay over the odds for players. And now they are looking a lot stronger in their forward line, in their midfield. I, I think it is important, and you touched on it a second ago, to, to note that a few months ago, we were all worried about the impending financial crisis that football was facing. And fast forward to now... And suddenly clubs are paying your 40s, your 50s, your 70 million pounds for players and other players are being talked of in terms of 100 million pounds. And I think that may lose the sympathy of some fans, but let's be honest, for other fans, they may be demanding that level of expenditure. Uh, and that's just the vacuum of the industry that we work with. But certainly, Van de Beek isn't to blame for his price tag. He will just add quality on the pitch and he'll make Manchester United a lot stronger. 
Yeah, I think he's made for the Premier League. What about Arsenal, Art? They haven't got the same money available, or so we're told, but they possibly will have a new central defensive partnership of William Saliba and Gabriel uh, Magalhaes. What's the potential of that, do you think? I think once the season's got underway and we're properly into the swing of things, that's probably a very real possibility. When you look at the back line at the minute, the the main system Arteta's been using is a back three with Kieran Tierney playing as a centre-back. That's because he's been so kind of intent on having a left-footed centre-back. We saw that not even a month into his time at Arsenal when he signed Pablo Mari on loan in January. And of course, that's been made permanent since. But the main kind of reason for that was because he wanted to balance the def- the defence and open more angles to to have moves like that Liverpool goal, like the uh, goal against Manchester City, to have the pitch much more open to, to play, really. And that's what Gabriel's going to bring in terms of what Arsenal need on the ball when looking at trying to build from the back with another left-footed centre-back. And then, of course, he's got, he's got to defend first. So I think that's an area that he's proven over his past season in Lille that he is able to do very well, a very commanding figure in the air that is also able to play in the ball. I've, I feel that over time, that will p- probably be the partnership Arteta will go with. But I do feel that David Luiz will still have a very important role to play for Arsenal in terms of kind of tutoring those two into their roles because he was the first defender, really, that became really influential under Mikata last season in terms of his on-pitch responsibilities of build and play from the back, but also the way he almost coached Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli through their kind of debut campaigns in the first team. They've both highlighted him as a main reason for their development since breaking into the first team, and I oh. think he's going to... Sorry. Yep. Uh, uh, do you think that David Luiz will remain, but maybe go into eventually into the coaching setup? And 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 I suppose I'm asking the question back to front. Do you think that Saliba and and Gabriel, as as Mike was saying, will enable Arteta to go back to a four? Because there were a couple of key campaigns when they needed to get defensively back onto uh, back to the consistency that they had previously, where he reverted to a three. But maybe he'll go back to a four so that he can maybe have more numbers in midfield or maybe in, in, in the final third. And and secondly, do you think that Louise will that, that will mean Louise has maybe less of an on pitch influence, but more of an off pitch influence as he adds his leadership to the young players at the club? Yeah, so I do think Gabriel coming in would lead to an eventual uh, reversion back to a back four, uh, simply because he adds another left-footed body into the defence that will then allow Kieran Tierney, of course, to go back out to left-back. But even when he's been playing uh, free at the back, which I think most people have seen as kind of a means to an end in terms of just getting results while, while they can, even in those games, it's kind of switched to a back four anyway, with, especially when Maitland-Niles has played at wing-back. Kieran Tierney's almost hugging the touchline as a centre-back and with Maitland-Niles pushing further forward and more in the field. So you've seen the kind of dynamic of the 
system switching in games. And I think the desire to move to a back four will be greatly encouraged by Gabriel coming into the side. And then on the Louise issue, I do think, I think in an interview you did during lockdown with Ian Wright, he did mention the desire to become a coach one day. I'm not sure if he said he was doing his coaching badges or not, but in regards to just the off-field stuff, I think that's something he would have done anyway, even if he was uh, still an on-field presence. And that is something even Kieran Tierney on a podcast he did, um, uh, I, I can't remember who it was with. He mentioned how David Louise was influential in his him settling down at a club as well, how I think he said on one of his, in one performance where he didn't play particularly well, he told Tierney that he'd take all the heat for the performance and then Tierney can just concentrate on on coming back stronger the next week. And I think that's something that is extremely valuable for Arteta in guiding what is such a young team to trying to get Champions League football again next season. Yeah, well... Um- there's a real sense of momentum building up both both in the transfer market and in expectation. But to pull all this together, Darren, our thought for the day section, what would you like to talk about? My goodness me. I would like to talk about the, I'm going to talk about football. Actually, I talk a lot about social problems, but I, I, Danny Ings gives kind of heartwarming story really Danny Ings Connor Cody all those players who left big clubs to seek their footballing fortunes and have found their way back to the England team and I think they send a really good message at the start of the new season to the young players and obviously midway through the transfer window to young players that you don't just have to stay at the big clubs taking the big money if you're not playing back yourselves go out play regular first team football work hard, have a good attitude, and you can find your way back to the top. And I think going into a new campaign, they couldn't be better role models for some of the younger players coming through right now. Yep, I'd agree with that. Art? Uh, I meant to bring it up earlier, but I forgot, so I'll bring it up now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of just Jack Grealish, his uh, inclusion in the side, I think when we've been watching England over the last few years, we've all seen they've become quite reliant on set pieces. And when you look at what Jack Grealish brought to Aston Villa last season in terms of the chances created from open play, he was rivaling um, Kevin De Bruyne and Trent Alexander-Arnold in terms of those numbers. So I think that's possibly another reason why he could succeed under Gareth Southgate in this England squad because becoming reliant on set pieces was quite a big issue and hopefully that can... um, ease those issues a little bit. Yeah, well, I'll dwell on young players and international football to a degree. Sam Illing Jr. still has his football life ahead of him. He's 16, the latest product of Chelsea's academy. The problem for Chelsea is that they've lost him to Juventus. The England under-17 winger rejected a professional contract and moved to Italy earlier this week. When Borussia Dortmund can make a profit of around £90 million on Jadon Sancho, and trust me, they will in the end, they also paved the way for his departure by buying Jude Bellingham. You can understand why it's becoming a trend that young English talent is fashionable. It's also relatively cheap. Playing abroad 
broadens the horizons and is infinitely better than the unpredictable loans or that sterile chore of under-23 football. If you look at the under-21 squad with England, it's stacked with talent. And how many of those players will fulfil themselves in the Premier League? That's a question that many are asking. I've got a hunch that we could be in for a talent drain from our game. Thanks then to R and Aaron, and as ever, to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.